What a wonderful home going for Emarie, and wouldn't that be wonderful if each of us were able to enter into God's presence so sweetly. Great to be with you again this morning as we continue chapter 10 in the Gospel of John. I love this chapter, of course, because it's about Jesus being the good shepherd. And last week we talked about the famous truth from the blind man that believer and unbeliever alike are familiar with, the I once was blind and now I see. And this chapter as well, believer and unbeliever are a little bit familiar with it because of the reference to God as the Good Shepherd and Psalm 23, which is most often referred to with the beauty of God as the Good Shepherd, his care for his sheep, but the popularity is because it has been read many times throughout the ages at funerals, right? Namely the verse, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And it's also Jesus's most tender and intimate title is that of the Good Shepherd. So thus far in our study, Jesus has revealed himself as the bread of life, that's in six, who relieves a hunger that food cannot fix. He is the living water, that's in seven, that quenches the thirst we cannot quench. He is the light of the world who takes away darkness, that's eight and nine. And now we get the picture of him as the good shepherd who tenderly cares for his sheep. And we know that shepherding imagery is common throughout scripture. Israel is referred to as God's flock. God is her shepherd. Isaiah 40, verse 11, like a shepherd, he will shepherd his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. And it's a messianic title for Christ. Ezekiel 37, 24 says, and my servant David will be the king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my judgments and keep my statutes and do them. And then spiritual leadership in the church. Shepherd is where we get our term for pastor. So some of the facts about sheep, because that is how we are referred to as the flock. As Christ followers, we are the sheep. And many of you know some of these, but by way of review, sheep are not the brightest animals. Now, funnily, <laughs> I did a little research on Google, and you'll never believe it. All of a sudden, somehow, sheep have all of a sudden become intelligent. That's what they're telling us. And I thought, this has to be the whole culture saying, you can't say any animal is dumb anymore. But I'm going to go old school. I think we are. And they are. They're easily frightened. They have no natural defenses against predators, except apparently for good eyesight. And they have no intuition, as do other animals, to find the right and safe road. They have to be led no instinct when they're about to fall off a cliff. So that means they are 100% dependent on the shepherd. So last week in John 9, remember the Jews accused Jesus of healing on the Sabbath when he healed the blind man. And I referred to a scripture where Jesus said to them, which one of you wouldn't pull a sheep out of a ditch on the Sabbath? Of course you would, right? He says, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? So Pull a sheep out of a ditch. Well, I just have to show you guys this video because it is so cute and so funny. Some of you may have seen it before, but I just think it's adorable. Давай, ты сможешь. Ты же, ты же нас любишь, животных. 
А Буш, отойди. Нет, сам. Он боится и так, Тас, отойди. Я пойду. А Буш, отойди. Нет. Какого маленького? Потяни сейчас, Ю! сам. Ю! Вверх потяни. Ой, умничка, Риад, умничка. Ногу не сломай, только ему. Умничка, умничка. За обе ноги. Молодец, Риад. Умничка. Умничка. Все, операция удалась. Yeah. There you go. Is that not us too, right? The shepherd pulls us out and we go right back in. And and I don't even actually know where that country is, but it's like a you know a little Eastern European King David or something. Russia? Russia, yeah. So that is us. And we are the dumb sheep right back into the ditch. Well, we've just come from the account of the blind man receiving sight, and the Pharisees have been told by Jesus that their sin remained because they wouldn't come to him to be forgiven. So the people listening to the account before us in John 10 are the disciples, the now healed man from last week, the Pharisees, and some others. And the Lord, in his infinite kindness, is continuing to call the crowd to repentance. But when our chapter closes, John, the writer of our gospel, no longer talks about Jesus' public ministry. Our overall picture here is Jesus declares himself to be the good shepherd, which is a fulfillment of prophecy and over and over against the false shepherds who were trying to draw people away from the true knowledge of Messiah. So after this account, the Lord moves to minister to his own disciples and those who love him. This is the end of Israel's opportunity. The sun is setting and the night is coming. So our outline this morning is the good shepherd knows his sheep, loves his sheep, gives eternal life, and does good works. So the good shepherd knows his sheep, and this is John 10, 1 through 10. So turn there in your Bibles if you haven't already. And in our opening verses... Jesus talks about false shepherds who led the Jewish people astray. And he was referring to thieves and robbers being those Jewish religious leaders who cared nothing about the people but only wanted to use them. And of course, some of the Pharisees were listening were those people. But he's also referring to the Old Testament false shepherds who led people astray. And then, of course, it's applicable for us in the church today because we are called to be on the lookout for false shepherds, the ones who come in sheep's clothing and are ravenous wolves. And Jesus talks about that in Matthew 7.15. But this is a wonderful characterization in this chapter, uh, starting in verses 3 through 5, of how Jesus calls his sheep and how they follow. This part in particular is him coming to Israel as the promised good shepherd and calling them into his messianic fold. But of course, that is extended to every believer. But he starts with Israel. He calls his own sheep by name and they know his voice. Calls us by name. Don't you love those moments in scripture when you hear the Lord call someone by name? And my favorite illustration of this is in John 20. When Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene at the tomb after his resurrection and she doesn't recognize him and he speaks to her twice asking her why she's weeping and whom she's seeking but he's calling her woman and then in verse 15 
It says, thinking him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher, his sheep hear his voice. So look at verses 4 through 5. When he brings all his own out, he goes ahead of them. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they will never follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. And I think it's the height of comfort to know that we will never follow a stranger. Especially now, I see so many people who have professed to be Christians making a shipwreck of their faith. And I personally know nothing more discouraging than to think someone is a believer, only to watch them devolve and follow the world and prove that they were never of us, as Scripture says. True believers will never be deceived. Our faith is sure. Nothing can change God's sovereign choice from eternity past. Psalm 3311 says, The counsel of Yahweh stands forever. The thoughts of his heart from generation to generation. We know his voice and we won't follow a stranger. He goes before them. Don't you love that truth? And I'm going to be quoting this morning from this little gem of a book titled A Sheep Remembers. And I have probably three or four quotes. And it's a shepherd. It's kind of reflections from a shepherd and also people who were watching and taking notes at that time. And then some comments on Psalm 23. So this is one of those quotes. While the shepherd is finding pasture, it is necessary that the sheep should be taught to follow and not stray in the unfenced fields of corn, which lie so temptingly on either side. Anyone who wanders is sure to get into trouble. The sheep calls sharply from time to time to remind them of his presence. They know his voice and follow on. But if a stranger call, they stop short, lift up their heads in alarm, and if the call is repeated, they turn and flee. So let's look at verses 7 through 9 of John chapter 10. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So this is number three of his I am statements that Jesus makes. I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, and now I am the door of the sheep. He is the only pass to enter into God's fold. So there were thieves and robbers. Those were the wicked, corrupt leaders of Israel in the Old Testament. You looked up some of those references in your lesson. False shepherds, selfish and cruel. But God promised he would deliver his people and care for them as a good shepherd. So you have those terrible leaders, and then you have the continuation of that, with all of these false leaders um, in the New Testament that Jesus confronts, they're covetous. They took advantage of widows. They turned God's temple into a den of thieves. And of course, they are plotting to kill the Lord. But if you enter through Christ, salvation is yours and blessings abound. For instance, remember last week, the Pharisees cast out the healed man from the synagogue but Jesus led him into the flock of God. Jesus says, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Sheep need food, water, and rest. 
So do we. But our lives are filled with so much beyond that. So many wants and longings. But the person who does not have the Lord, this has to be first, as his or her shepherd, may seek to obtain everything the world has to offer but still be miserable. Sooner or later, worldly people discover they have hewed out cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. Jeremiah 2.13. Jesus is the only way to the Father and the only one who satisfies our souls. He'll say it in John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And that is absolutely true. The pasture that God gives us is satisfying pasture. And it's so beautifully described in Psalm 23. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. His care for us is particular. And then, again, in chapter 10, verse 10, it says that we will have abundant life. He'll give us abundant life, which means abundant, far more than necessary. Romans 8, 32. He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Are you believing about the promises God has given you. Even in the midst of your distresses, are you holding to 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all of your anxieties upon him because he cares for you? I love this truth about God's care for us as related to the sheep. And this is another quote from the book. Late in autumn, when the pastures are dried up, or in winter, when places are covered with snow, the shepherd must furnish sheep food or they die. In the vast oak woods along the eastern sides of Lebanon, there are gathered flocks, and the shepherd are all day in the trees cutting down the branches upon whose green leaves and tender twigs the sheep are entirely supported. Did you ever see a shepherd gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom? He will gently lead along the mothers in whose times when to overdrive them even for a single day would cause their death. As Jacob said to his brother, so this is Genesis 33, 13, but Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and the herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. God knows our frame. He knows we're fragile. He will care for us. As the psalmist says in 18, 36, you enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. So apply that, ladies, to whatever you may be facing today. Think about how Christ tenderly supports you and enlarges that place underneath you to hold you steady. So not only does the Lord know his sheep, the good shepherd loves his sheep, 11 through 21. So in this portion, Jesus compares himself between the hired hand who doesn't care about the sheep. Again, that's the religious leaders who don't care about the people. And he says that he lays down his life for the sheep. And this is the fourth of his I am statements. I am the good shepherd. The Greek reads the shepherd, the good one. He gives his life for his sheep. And this, of course, is referring to his voluntary sacrificial death. And scripture talks about how all of our sins are put on him. Yet he himself bore the sin of many. He takes away the sin of the world. He was made to be sin for us. He was offered once to bear the sins of many. 
Christ laid down his life for his own. And one of my favorites, perhaps one of yours, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Loved me and gave himself for me. So this is Christ's love for the believer, and it is a joyful truth. So continuing on in 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my sheep. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And this is describing an intimate love relationship. And so often, ladies, in, in counseling, or even I think, you know, you're, you probably have this conversation, these conversations too, it seems like a lot of people maybe don't have so much trouble believing God is all-powerful or sovereign, etc., but maybe loving. Or maybe, yeah, he's loving, but does he love me? Sometimes there's a difficulty wrapping our minds around the truth that God loves us. If he loved me, maybe I wouldn't be going through this. Or if he loved me, why don't I have this thing I've been praying for? But this in particular, his laying down his life for us really highlights that love. Yes, he does love us more than we can comprehend as he brings us through that trial. Or he doesn't answer that prayer exactly how we had hoped. We are loved exceedingly. He is doing what is perfect in us. He's enlarging that place underneath our feet. And he is carrying us close to himself. So that word no is tender and it's affectionate. And it's such a powerful truth since it's connected to the relationship between Jesus and God the Father. And our pastor says it best, the simple truth. <laughs> I love it, the simple truth. Here is that Jesus in love knows his own. They in love know him. The Father in love knows Jesus and he in love knows the Father. Believers are caught up in the deep and intimate affection that is shared between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I have this little illustration, again, from my little book and this picture of tenderness that I'm, so I'm quoting from that. Once during the day, each sheep would break away from the line and approach the shepherd. The shepherd holds out his hand and encourages the sheep, and the sheep runs to him. The sheep rubs its nose and ears affectionately, or the shepherd rubs its nose and ears affectionately. If the shepherd is sitting down, the sheep nibbles at his ears and rubs his cheek against the face of the faithful shepherd. After a few moments of communion and exchange of love with the master and finding fullness of joy in his presence, the sheep returns to its place, refreshed and made content." Isn't it amazing, ladies, that we can experience God as the one who has the power to command the winds and the waves, but is also the one who tenderly calls us to know him intimately because he loves his own. So verse 16 says, And I have other sheep which are not from this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice. And they will become one flock with one shepherd. And I love this verse because suddenly we are transported, time travel. All of a sudden, Jesus is speaking about us, those who will be saved in the future. 
and become part of the church. So that will be all the redeemed Jews and the Gentiles. I love that. One flock, one shepherd. Them I must also bring, he says. They are already his possession. There's so much security in these verses. I always love, I think of Acts 18, 9, and 10 with Paul. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will lay a hand on you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. So people appointed to faith or people that were already believing were in the city. Paul and Barnabas, too, preaching in Antioch in the book of Acts 13, 48, it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So let's continue on with our verses in 17 and 18. It says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it away from me, but from myself. I lay it down. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Though Christ's life seems to have been taken by storm, yet it was surrendered. His power, complete submission to the Father, but absolute power and control. He comes to do the Father's will. We see that theme over and over. And he lays his life down freely. To think, Jesus thought of the Father's love so profoundly and sufficient for all his sufferings, shall we think it too little for ours? If Jesus thought that God's love was so profound for all his sufferings and sufficient, we should never think that his love is too little for us. His provision is more than enough. And it's very comforting when you think about this, ladies, that his disciples in their brokenheartedness over watching Christ being led to the cross, instead of thinking that he had been overcome by his enemies, because that was definitely would be the fear, they instead could think about what he had said to them and that this was God's providence dying for his flock because he foretold his death and resurrection, and said that he was in control of it. They didn't quite understand that at the time, but I think the Lord maybe brought that back to them. The authority to lay his life down and take it up again came from the Father. In Romans 5.8, it says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Ephesians 5.2, it says, And walk in love, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us. He lays it down, and then he takes it up. That is the ultimate declaration of his deity. His victory over death is the most conclusive evidence that he is God, the Son. The Father loves the Son. That's a theme, isn't it? And has given all things into his hand, it says in John 3.35. And we are preserved by his power. Is that not a joy to know? We often fail to trust him or obey him. But like the sheep, the shepherd does not cast them off because they are way, wayward, erring, foot sore, sick, or lame. He tenderly cares for them. He bears patiently with their weaknesses, with our weaknesses and infirmities. In all of that, 
Jesus' willingness to lay his life down, his tender care, his calling us by name, his knowing and loving us from eternity past. How can we doubt God's love for us? I know we do sometimes, but we shouldn't, not with all this truth. And then you have a division again. Some of them said, of course, you know, he has a demon, and others said, how can he open the eyes of the blind? So that concludes that little actual portion because our next point here, the good shepherd gives eternal life. There's a bit of a gap in our story. A couple of months pass, and it's now the feast of dedication. So it's winter, and the Jews surround Jesus in the temple, and they wanted to say, they wanted him to say he was Messiah. So, of course, they could accuse him. And Jesus told them the reason they didn't believe his plain speaking about who he was was because they weren't his sheep. So he continues with that thread and the good shepherd, references to the good shepherd. So this is where divine sovereignty and human responsibility work together. They deliberately rejected the truth, but they did not believe because they hadn't been given to Jesus by God the Father. So that's a tension we cannot fully comprehend. Volumes have been written about this subject. We cannot truly comprehend it fully. From a human standpoint, we become his sheep by believing. But from a divine standpoint, we believe because we are his sheep. One commentator says, just very succinctly, in the Bible, divine election and human responsibility are perfectly balanced. And what God has joined together, we must not put asunder. So we can just think about it that way. And I love Acts 2.23, I think is the best verse that describes this. This man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death, right? It's a both and from Scripture. From our standpoint, it's Acts 17 when Paul says God calls everyone, all men, everywhere to repent And every soul is responsible for how they respond to Jesus Christ. Also, the offer of salvation is to all. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus said that in John 7. So let's continue on, ladies, in verses 27 through 29 of John 10. And Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, ever. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Well, of these verses, our pastor says, no stronger passage in the Old or New Testament exists for the absolute eternal security of every true Christian. For those of you who maybe struggle with doubting your salvation, or those of you who maybe maybe you were in a church, or maybe even you've been taught or you think now that you can lose your salvation, well, this verse is for you. Given eternal life, never perish, secure in their hand. No false prophets, even the devil himself, is powerful enough to take us out of his hand. We are held by the Father and Son. We are protected from all spiritual enemies and have access to all of God's blessings. 
All this divine power is engaged for the safety of the saints. Don't you think of that song, The Power of Christ in Me, right? No power of hell nor scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. So perfectly said. So special protection. Sheep are comforted by knowing that in the most dangerous and alarming places, their shepherd is with them. God does not promise that we will face no evil. He promises we need fear no evil. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And apparently there is an actual valley of the shadow of death just south of Jerusalem in Palestine. It is a very narrow defile through a mountain range torn by jagged rocks. The path plunges downward from about 2,700 feet above sea level at one end to nearly 400 feet below sea level at the other. The valley is about five miles long, yet it is not more than 12 feet across at its widest section. The actual path is so narrow, the sheep can hardly turn around in case of danger. But you know, they are with the shepherd. They fear no evil. And like I said, sheep have no natural defenses against enemies. They must totally depend on the shepherd. And while grazing, they constantly watch to see if the shepherd is with them. And if they fail to find him, the whole flock is alarmed and scatters. Even when they're in the fold, the shepherd's presence is needed to keep them quiet. An old shepherd was asked about his staff and how it was used for comfort. And he explained in the daylight, he carried it across his shoulder. But if night overtook them and if they were on a mountainside and a heavy mist rolled in and the sheep could not see him, then he would lower it. And as he walked, he would tap it on the ground. And by hearing that, by hearing the tap of the staff, the sheep would be comforted because of the shepherd's presence. That's just, again, drawing a picture of how helpless we are and how much we depend 100% on our shepherd. But it's also setting us free to live a life of joy in the midst of this truth. Mighty power of God is so immense. We come in and out and find pasture. We can say, Philippians 1.6, we will persevere by God's saving power because he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. We also know that no charge will ever stand against us. We know that from Romans 8. And also in Isaiah 43, 13. Indeed, before the day was, I am he, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, and who will reverse it? Meaning before he created anything, of course, God existed, but his will went forward, will always go forward without interference. And that's the united purpose we see here with both the Father and the Son. And I think about Peter on the water in Matthew 14, 28 through 31. And Peter answered and said to him, Lord, when they were out on the water, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And getting out of the boat, Peter walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. And he said to him, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And there are places in our heart, in our lives where we doubt, don't we, ladies? 
but not when we think about our good shepherd and his powerful hand holding us secure. And he says in verse 30, I and the Father are one. Again, that's the united purpose of them protecting the sheep. Well, we have seen some of the hallmarks of the good shepherd, right? His care, his love, his power. And now we'll talk about the good shepherd does good works. And this is 31 through 42. I and the Father are one. He just said that. And then the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. So this is the fourth time in the Gospel of John that they tried to kill him, accusing him of blasphemy. So we're seeing greater and greater opposition that will eventually lead to Christ's crucifixion. How could they look into the face of the Lord of glory and call him a liar? And I love this quote from Matthew Henry. It is hard to say which is more to be wondered at. That men who breathe in God's air should speak such things? Or that men who have spoken such things should still be suffered to breathe God's air. Very true, right? But it simply shows, simply shows the wickedness of man and the patience of God. And Jesus appeals to them. Again, I mean, I I love this. Apparently, the adjective regarding good for good works means noble, excellent, or beautiful. Don't those words fit the Lord's work? So the Jews just, of course, ignored that and instead charged him with blasphemy because he was claiming to be God. Not blasphemy, he is God. The Jews in the audience understood what Jesus' words meant, though they didn't believe him. They knew what he was claiming. So he says, believe the works you see. Believe your own eyes and the logical reasoning. And We saw this last week, remember, with the willful unbelief. Scripture is clear, Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So even those here with a willful unbelief, every soul will be without excuse. So they rejected the truth that they saw. Why? We know from John 3, light has come into the world But men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So I just think, you know, this is a practical point, too, for us to understand this theme with the unbelieving Pharisees constantly trying to explain away Jesus' miracles or catch him in a lie or discredit him. Because unregenerate man doesn't believe in God, not because he has no knowledge of God, that's a clear clear example of this here, but because he rebels against the knowledge of God that he does have. So it's the reason, let's say, someone believes in evolution. They don't start there. That's the vain speculation that they end up at because they foundationally reject the one and only true God of the universe. So that's the godless reason that they come up with why things the way they are. So 
I think sometimes that's helpful when you're interacting with lost friends and family to understand that presupposition. You know, so your next family potluck, you can talk to your Uncle Joe about evolution and say, actually, you didn't start there. You started rejecting the true, awesome, perfect, wonderful God of the universe, right? Bring over your broccoli salad and let's talk about that more. So in verses 34 through 38, Jesus rebukes them for accusing him. And basically he talks about or references Psalm 86.6 because there's a reference there to God's little g as Israel's unjust judges. And so Jesus is saying, if men who are evil could in some sense be called gods, how could it be wrong for him, the one the Father sanctified and set into the world to call himself the Son of God, because he is truly that. So he's making this another appeal. So let's read 37 through 38. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and continue knowing that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Well, the mighty miracles which our Lord performed were not few in number. Forty times and more we read in the Gospels of him doing extraordinary things, healing the sick in a moment, raising the dead, casting out devils, claiming or calming the winds and the waves, walking on water. The Lord appealed to his works as proof of his indivisible union with the Father. If you don't believe, look at all I've done. So, so much to point to. If my words are too difficult to believe, just look at my miracles. Jesus is God, man, di- divine. He is human nature, perfectly united, the prophesied Christ, the Messiah, and the Savior of the world. Of course, they didn't like that and sought to kill him, but he escaped and went beyond the Jordan, and there he stayed, and he won't return for three or four months. Remember, chapter 7 was the turning point when the hatred for Christ intensifies, and one of the purposes of John's gospel is to record how mankind responded to Jesus as Messiah. So we're at that point now, and I mentioned at the beginning where Jesus closes his public ministry with this last rejection. For three years, he had been traveling the length of Israel, preaching, calling for repentance, confronting the hypocrites, performing signs and wonders, and demonstrating his deity. But the nation of Israel has rejected him. I like this quote. Let us take heed that we use this door. I am the door. And do not stand outside looking at it. It is a door free and open to the chief of sinners. If any man enter it, he will be saved. The day comes when this door will be shut forever, and men will strive to enter in, but not be able. Let us not stand tarrying outside and halting between two opinions. Let us enter in and be saved. Enter in and find pasture. So we have this last high note here in this last verse when Jesus is at the place beyond the Jordan. 
This is 41 through 42. And many came to him and were saying, while John did no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is such a neat truth. John the Baptist was dead by this time, but he'd been a faithful witness and prepared the way of the Lord. For all the times we wonder if God uses our words, our testimony, if you moms wonder if your kids will ever retain everything that you are trying to teach them in the way of God, your family that you're trying to speak to, your coworkers and friends, be encouraged. God will bring to mind what needs to be embraced at the right time for his purposes, right? Don't we love the scripture that says his scripture will never return void. His word never returns void. It always accomplishes its purpose. John the Baptist didn't see the result of his preaching there, but God used his testimony. So our job is to be a faithful witness, taking every opportunity that we can to point to the Lord. Like the sower who sows the seed, we are to do so. We sow the word, the gospel, we trust the Lord for what he will do, and we believe that it leads to blessing, eternal reward, and friends in heaven that we might not even realize yet, but we will see them there. Definitely going to see the blind man, right? Remember? the blind man, the healed man. (laughs) So our um, last, uh, here, I I love this. I just want to encourage us with many believed, okay? So I'm going to read some scriptures from our gospel here of believing. John 2, 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, 830. As he was speaking these things, many believed in him. John 4, 39 and 41. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him. And many more believed because of his word. 731. And many of the crowd believed in him. And then, of course, our verse here, John 10, 42. And many believed in him there. Our Lord knows his sheep, loves his sheep gives his sheep eternal life, and does good works. Be sure, ladies, that you have answered the call to believe and that you have received the shepherd of your souls, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is worthy of all glory and honor. And be sure to think and consider how his love and care and protection and being personally known by him makes you think and act differently, whether that's in response to trials or in your marriage or in your struggle with anxiety, or in your problem with anger, or maybe in the very lonely places in your heart, or whenever you drive the five freeway. (laughs) The whole point of our ministry here is through the study of the word, we can apply it, and we can learn, and we can walk worthy of our calling. So I'm going to give you one last quote from my little book. A shepherd writes, For me, the most cherished hour of the day was the early evening when the high hills and stately trees cast their kindly shadows across the face of the fields in holy solemnity. I knew then that it was time to go home. The sheep also instinctively seemed to sense the significance of these signs 
At the sound of the pipe or the even song of soft melody by the shepherd, they literally and with great charm dance onward in their happy journey homeward. A few picking up here and there the last mouthful of food ere they enter the fold. So are the true sons of God, children of the heavenly king, who rejoice at the happy prospect of being in the fold permanently with their shepherd, Lord, singing on their joyous journey homeward. Oh, that will be glory for me. So we'll end with a benediction from Hebrews. Just bow with me and I will pray. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, our Lord Jesus, equip you in every good thing to do his will by doing in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.